This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon will be teaching the message. So, talking about young people, I've been mulling on something for a while. Um, Quite honestly, I've been troubled by this thought. It's not only for our young people, but I think uh, our young people, the millennials, maybe uh, are the... The, the point of focus for me of late, but I've been wondering, how is it that we live in this country? We have access to all the things we have access to, the resources we have available, the choices that we can make regarding the good life. We're far blessed than any other nation on earth, and yet we live in a society with all that we have, a society that seems to be racked with issues of unhappiness, depression, anxiety, struggling with identity and purpose. How is it that it seems like we're a a nation of much, yet we're so lacking in in, in things that that bring bring happiness and and confidence? How is it that we're just so racked with fear and anxiety? And again, uh, specifically, I'm talking about the young generation. For me, growing up, being young meant being crazy and trying all sorts of things. But it doesn't seem to be the case for this young generation. Uh, I came across an article by a woman whose name is Tess Bingham. She's a psychoanalyst, and it just happens that she sees primarily millennials, 23 to 38-year-olds. 23 to 38-year-olds, like 97% of her her clients are within that age, and the rest are their parents. And she brings an interesting observation. Uh, Let me share with you a little bit of what she says about this millennial generation. She says, over the last years of practice, she's noticed a dominant theme when it comes to the clusters of problems about which these millennials keep coming to seek help. They say, I have too many choices, and I can't decide what to do. Here it is. What if I make the wrong choice? Now, with all the choices that we have, who would think that that one of the consequences is that it creates paralysis by analysis. It creates a tension, a struggle, worrying about making the right choice. Worrying about choosing the wrong path or making the wrong choice because I have so many choices that, that, that I start to stress out that, that I'm going to somehow miss. You know, if I choose this, then I'll miss out on that. Or if I choose this, it's not going to go to, go to that. And it's creating a tension. It's creating a struggle. It's creating a stress amongst our people. You know, I've come to learn in life that there are seasons in which you might make your best choice, but it still goes wrong. And it's just part of life, right? Best intentions, best motivations. Sometimes you make a decision and it goes wrong, and then you make another decision and it gets worse, and you make another decision, and next thing you know, you're in a situation that's not good at all. You're in a situation in which you're not looking forward to the future. You're in a dark place. You're depressed. And, and, and no wonder then the alternatives to, to alleviate that depression become really um, something that you look to, whether it be an addiction, whether it be, whether it be a, you know, pornography or drugs or, or just anxiety or depression. And you have to go on a medication and you start acting out ways. Why? Because you get to a place where you feel like every decision you make, you make the wrong one, and it's not good. 
And in this place, if you're a person of faith, you're a person that believes in a God of blessing, uh, that brings an interesting wrinkle because you think, well, I'm in this dark place and I made these decisions and I made them in faith and I made them with, with good intentions and yet here I am in such a bad place. Uh, God must not be with me. God must not hurt me. God must not be real. We start a series today, Undeserved, we're going to talk about grace, but specifically we're going to look at a, a book of the Bible called Ruth. And the beauty of Ruth is, is that this is an odd book, four little chapters, that you wonder what on earth is this book doing here in the books of the Bible. Ruth is a story about ordinary people of faith making choices that end up turning sour. And I said it's jammed in with these other books that are these books about the history, these grand stories of men of faith and battles and God doing all this miraculous, crazy stuff that you're like, whoa, it's jammed in there, just right in between there, and you're like, why is this book even here? It doesn't seem to fit. It's an odd book. But I'm coming to discover it is a powerful book because it tells us something that we all need to know, something about God's grace and the God that we've come to follow and believe and the God who's with us in our bitter times. The beginning of the Bible begins with the book of Genesis, right? And it's important to set the context for where Ruth belongs in the story. Book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. If you have your, your Bibles or if you have your phones and you pull up, you know, where you go to the book part, you'll see Genesis is first. And Genesis is about beginnings. And it tells the story of God creating the world and creating man, the, the pinnacle of creation. Placing man and, and woman in the garden so that he might have fellowship with them, so that he might know them. They were right with God and they walked with God in life and he gave them purpose. Their purpose was to, to learn to manage the garden so that they may be able to manage the earth in honor of God. And it was good. It was very good, God said, until the time in which man decided to not believe that God had their best interests at heart and chose to rebel and sin. And when that occurred, everything was turned upside down. The love relationship between God and man was broken. No longer could man look up to God in worship. No, he began to look up to God in fear because of sin and the separation that had occurred in their life. No longer could God relate to man in love but instead now had to deal with this issue of disobedience and relate them in wrath, and it was not a good situation. For the wages of sin is death, Romans will say. And that's a description of our condition. But the good news is that right there in the beginning, right in the first few chapters after we see this, this story of man losing his place, her place in fellowship with God, not being right with God, we see God vocalizing a plan to restore what was lost. He says, I'm going to send one who's going to destroy the work of Satan, and he's going to bring things to right. 
And so we have in the book of Genesis this story of God's plan, the story of God and man, and of God now beginning to put into action a plan. And the plan begins by the selection of an individual, a guy called Abraham, whose family then becomes a nation called Israel. And we're told at the end of Genesis, Abraham's family, his family as it grew, had moved to Egypt, and in Egypt, they began to flourish and grow. They began to be turned into a people, the Israelites. And the purpose of God having this people was that he wanted a people to be his own who would serve as an example to all the world of what it means to live right with God so that others, the rest of the world, can know God and follow that example. And so at the end of Genesis, you have the people of Israel in Egypt, and then you get into the book of Exodus, and Exodus means get out, summary statement, it's not a biblical word, but it is there, get out, and where are they getting out? They're getting out of Egypt, why? Because the Egyptians had enslaved the people of Israel, and God sent his man Moses, who led them out of Egypt to a new place, the place that he had promised, the promised land, the land of Canaan, what we would call modern-day Israel. And so you got Exodus, and you got Leviticus, and you got Deuteronomy. Exodus is the story of them out, but it's also the story of God being very specific in his communications to the people of Israel. We'll call it the law, the Ten Commandments and all that. He's saying to his people, hey, this is what it means to live for me. If you're going to be my people, this is how you're to conduct yourself. This is how you're to worship. This is how you're to eat. This is how you're to marry. This is how to, to deal with one another in, in relationship. And so we have Moses given the law, and, and he leads the people of Israel, and they disobey him, so they had to do a detour through the desert 40 years. But eventually he comes to the edge of the, the land of Canaan, and Moses is not allowed to go in. That's another story. You can read all about it on your own, a little homework there if you'd like. And he hands over the baton of leadership to Joshua. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua. And Joshua means God saves. God is salvation. And he leads the people of Israel. He's a, he's a general. He leads the people on a, a war campaign to drive out the people of Canaan out of the land and so that the people of Israel can settle in. And in Joshua, the people settle, and they began to establish themselves, and then we move into Judges. As the people of Israel settled the land that God gave them, they began to learn what it means to be his people. And basically, they followed a, a pattern. The pattern was this. When they obeyed God and lived by his laws, things went really well and was really good for them. But when they turned their attention to starting to worship other gods and practice things that were outside of God's word, started to follow their own ways and be disobedient to the law, God would send them a foreign oppressor who would basically be a punishment and a reminder to turn to him. And then there were things would really be bad for them. And then they would be open and cry out to God, save us because this is not how we want to live. We're sorry. And then he would send an individual called a judge who would lead the people in a campaign to push out the foreign invaders and reestablish the people in living for him. And they would go over and over, because it's called judges, not judge, judges. And you have this season going over and over and over for a number of years. Well, we're told that Ruth occurs, the story of Ruth, the book that we're going to look in, occurs at the time of the judges. Ruth occurs at the time of the judges. And it's a story not about a, a, 
one of the big leaders. It's a story not about that involves God showing up and an angel speaking or a prophet speaking, thus saith the Lord. No, the story focuses on a family, a family of faith trying to live for God and make decisions that they believe is best to survive. And every decision they make, it goes bad. It goes bad. And so, if you want, let me give you a summary of Ruth chapter 1. We won't be reading that. I encourage you in your time to go through Ruth chapter 1. But let's go through Ruth chapter 1. It'll be helpful with, with the map here to, to see the story of Ruth. So, we begin with Bethlehem, right? That's Bethlehem. So, there's the Mediterranean Sea. I'm sorry I don't have color, but this is probably the simplest way to do this. This is the land of Canaan. This is a tribe that settled there, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin set it up. This is Jerusalem. It's called Jebus at the time. The city of Jericho is right there. If you're familiar with these places in, the old, in, in Israel, this is the Dead Sea, you know, the sea that you can lay in and float because it's so full of salt. That's the Jericho River, uh, River Jordan, excuse me, River Jordan. Okay, so the story begins in Bethlehem, begins with a family, a husband and a wife and two sons. Bethlehem means house of bread. But at the time of Ruth, at the time of our story, the house of bread was empty. Why? Because it was a famine in the land, and people were starving, and people were being to wonder, what are we going to do to survive? How are we going to live? And so this family, a man named Emilek and his wife Naomi, and the two sons Malon and Chilion, I'm going to just read those names one more time because, you know, these Jewish names are weird, or Hebrew names are weird to say. Anyway, we'll continue. Um, this land was hard hit by famine, and so this family decides to make a decision that they think is best. This husband and wife, this family decides, we need to get out of Bethlehem and go to a place where we can survive, and they decide to go to the land of Moab. Moab is right here, so they have to journey around, across the Jordan River, and down, come south, as it were, to Moab. Moab was settled by the Moabites. The Moabites are a people who are kind of cousins to the Israelites. Remember I mentioned Abraham? Abraham had a nephew. His name was Lot. Well, the daughter of Lot is the, the answer, you know, the beginning of the Moabites. And if you're familiar with the story, it's kind of a sordid beginning because the Moabites are the descendants of Lot, the father, and his daughter. Yikes. Okay. And so they were kind of, a, kind of a disgraceful beginning, and so they were looked down on a little bit by the Israelites, those Moabites, you know, yuck. But this is where the family begins, and, and Naomi's family moves there, and they make the decision. And remember, what's the theme? Um, thought I was doing what was right, and it's turning out to go bad. Well, they make the decision, and as soon as they move to Moab, we're told, first of all, Emelech, Emelech, whatever his name is, dies. Naomi loses her husband. The two sons marry Moabitesses, marry Moabite women, and they settle, and we're told that that turns sour. After 10 years, at the end of 10 years, both the sons die. And what you have is, is you have Naomi, an older widow, and her two daughters, Moabitess women, who are also widows. Their name is Orpah and Ruth. Decisions that they thought were right all of a sudden turn sour. Turn sour. Naomi's husband died. 
Naomi's sons die. Three widows. And you've got to understand the plight of widows at that time. First of all, women were second-class citizens. They didn't have rights. They weren't able to earn money. And so a woman who had the, no protection of a father or a husband was in danger, was vulnerable, had to live off the charity of others. And so in this position, Naomi gets word that things back home have settled, that the food is there. She says, you know what? I have no other options. Uh, I'm going to go home and die. I'm going to go home to the people that I, I know. I'm going to go back to, to the Israelites. I'm going to go back to my kin in Bethlehem. And so she makes a decision to leave. And as she's leaving, her, her daughter-in-laws go with her, and she says, girls, girls, there's no future for you with me. I, I can't produce more sons for you to marry, and if I did, <laughs> you'll be waiting a long time. Go home to your families. Go home to your fathers. That would be the best option for you. And we're told when she makes that decision, that plea, one of the daughters-in-law says, okay, Orpah leaves. But Ruth says, no way. No way. I'm not leaving you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'll go where you go. I'll be buried where you die. And so Naomi and Ruth make the journey, and they come back to Bethlehem. And to capture where Naomi was and how she was feeling, to capture exactly the circumstances surrounding her, her season, let's, let's, let's look at the last verses of Ruth chapter 1. Verse 20. Now, this is Naomi speaking to the people of Bethlehem. She arrives, and everyone's like, Hey, Naomi's back. And a little twist here. Naomi means full or plenty. Just remember that. That's what the name means, right? She said to them, this is Naomi saying to the people that greeted her in Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me full. Don't call me plenty. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Don't call me full. The Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me, since the Lord has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I read this, and I'm reminded of the fact that if you live long enough in this world, you will face seasons of bitterness. I'm reminded of the fact that if you live in this world long enough as a person of faith, as an individual in this life, there is going to be a season in which you went in full, but you're going to feel like you came out empty. That you were once Naomi full, but now you're Mara bitter. There are seasons in the course of our life in which we will expect we'll go through darkness and depression and sadness and difficulty where we will feel that our prayers are ineffective and God has abandoned us, just like Naomi. Maybe it'll be a season because your marriage fell apart, you started in love but ended in divorce. 
Maybe it's because of your health. You started fit and full of energy, and now, because of sickness after sickness, suffering after suffering, you're unfit and unenergetic and in pain. Maybe it's related to your kids, right? You did your best to rear your children in the right way, but they just seem to be making all the wrong decisions, and the heartache is heavy, and the burden is strong. Maybe it has to do with your dreams for your future. You had this dream of going to college, getting a job, my dream job, earning what I need, and it turns out there are no jobs, and all you've got is debt, and all you do is what you can, and you're miserable in where you're at. Whatever the, the storyline, we go through seasons of bitterness. And whatever the storyline is that we can relate at one time and will relate at one time to what Naomi has to say. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. I once was full, but now I feel like God has abandoned me and left me empty. Now, it's interesting to note that in this story, you have a number of characters, ordinary people. You've got the husband and the sons. You've got Naomi, who's one of the main characters. You've got Ruth. The book's named after her. You've got Boaz. You will meet Boaz. He's the, he's the guy that comes along, a romance thing. You've got these wonderful characters in these four chapters in this odd book but I'm going to tell you, as the reader, as a person who begins to see what plays out, there is one character who is the main character that I pray that you will be open to, and that's God. See, what we're going to discover is that the God of Naomi, who becomes the God of Ruth, who is the God of King David, who is the famous ancestor of Ruth and Boaz. King David is the famous ancestor of our King Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, who will make all who are, who are seeking to be right with God. He's the, the promise that's right there in the beginning of how God will make a way for us to be right with Him. That God, you know, starts with Abraham to a people of Israel, and from the people of Israel goes back to an individual. That individual is Jesus. What we're going to discover that the God we serve and worship here at Mount Carmel Christian Church is a God who's with us in the bitterness. What we're going to discover is that grace is big enough to embrace our pain and suffering. And when things are dark, and when things are bleak, and when things are empty, when we're in a position on which we cannot move forward because we have nothing forward looking to look forward to in life, we have a God who gives us a grace that's with us in our bitter seasons. See, the trouble with people of faith is that when we go through difficult times, we immediately assume that, that God has abandoned us and left us. And, and like, like Naomi, God has led us through this difficult place, and, and we're just going to be done with that. We're going to be done with that. And what we're going to discover through the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, what we're going to discover through this journey through these four chapters of, of Ruth is that we serve a God who is with us in our bitter seasons. Never leave us nor abandon us. 
And if we're open to it, we will see the way in which he provides for us to be able to access his blessing, how we can go from empty back to plenty through faith. See, even right there in the first chapter, we see this being modeled for us. We see the path of faith, even if it's just, as Jesus says, the size of a mustard seed, small and tiny and weak. If we have faith, if we believe and hold on to God, it will activate the grace that will bring us through the season of bitterness. See, though Naomi was bitter, she never fully gave up on God. How do I know this? Well, first of all, she prayed. How do you know she prayed? Well, it's right there in the text, verse 8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, and she didn't pray for herself, notice that, but she still prayed. Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal with you kindly as you have dealt with the dead and with me. There's a prayer. May the Lord grant you that you find, may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Faith activated by looking up. And in seasons of bitterness, Though it's hard, we're going to see that we need to look up. We're also going to see that it's important in these seasons of bitterness is that we respond in faith to what God calls us to do, to move forward. And sometimes moving is literally moving, right? What did Naomi do? She got up and she walked. She walked back to Bethlehem. Though she was in a season of bitterness, she began to move, literally. And her faith began to propel her towards an end, towards a goal. I'm going to go back. I'm going to return to Bethlehem. I might return to die. I may return to be in my season of bitterness. But I am still going to take one step after the other in response to what I hear God is doing back home in Bethlehem. She moved. See, faith is never passive. A ship can't be stared at sitting still. It needs to be moved. And many times in our season of bitterness, we want to sit still, close the curtains, sit on the couch, do nothing. But I will tell you that when we lift our eyes up to God in prayer, he also calls us to get up off the couch. Maybe it's, that's all we do that one day, get up off the couch and, and, and walk to the door and back. But we've got to move. And thirdly, we're going to see that faith always includes community. See, depression isolates, faith congregates. It's so hard. When you're miserable and in a season of bitterness, you don't want anyone there with you. You want to be left alone because you feel like you're a plague, you're a downer, you're, you're just a black hole that sucks everything that's good down into it. Naomi didn't want her daughters-in-law, did she? She said, get away from me, girls. You would do better off to go home because that's where the future is. And what happened? Ruth said, no way. And Naomi said, okay. And in that community, we see God's grace poured in. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. Verse 16, which Ruth pledges her devotion to her mother-in-law. That's a miracle in itself, right? But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or go back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death departs you and me. Now, I want to tell you that this is not just theory. This is not just three little lessons, look up, move, open to yourself the community that I'm sharing with you that you apply to your life that I believe will work. No, this is personal for me. I, I think I've shared this with you before, but let me share with you a little bit in depth in the past. You know, uh, <laughs> congregation, leadership, team, sneaky people, my staff, elders, my family set up a little surprise thing for me a couple weeks ago, celebrating 20 years of ministry in September, and uh, yeah, apparently I'm, I'm, I'm at the top of the hill going down because I turned 50 in a couple of days. Um, <laughs> I say to that, you know, the top of the hill is the best part of the roller coaster. It's when you start to put your hand up and go, wee! All right. So I guess it's we from now on down. <laughs> anyway, uh, 20 years of ministry. Some of you know this, and you've been around for a while. Um, me coming on as senior minister was not in the best of terms in terms of a church and in terms of my family. And uh, it was very hard. Lots of strife, a lot of turmoil, a lot of disappointment. And I came into ministry full, and after seven years of senior ministry, I was empty. I was burned out. I was bitter. I was not in a good place. Dealing with strife in your, in your home life, in your family life, and dealing with strife and turmoil in your work life, it just wore me to a pulp, beat me down. I was done. And I kind of realized something was wrong because I reacted to my daughter. She was 12 years old. She did something 12-year-olds do, and I just lost my mind. I'm like, okay, something's going on here and something I need to address because I can't live like this. Went to a conference and heard a preacher, and the title of the sermon was Dead Man Walking, and he talked about what I was feeling. I remember crying, watching this, and I realized uh, something's got to be done. I was in a season of bitterness. One of his recommendations was begin to journal and start journaling in prayer. And to be honest with you, I'm a minister, and, you know, prayer, you think, you know, prayer and journaling and Bible stuff, you know, is normal. And... You do it for work, but to do it for your heart and your personally sometimes gets overlooked because you're like, I'm always in the Bible. So no, you really need to do it for your heart and do it for yourself. Uh, and that's what I began to return to. And I started to journal. I started to pour myself into Scripture. I started to really looking up. And though my prayers may have been weak and my prayers may have been pitiful, my faith, even as a senior minister of this church, was the size of a mustard seed, I just began to lean into that. Second thing is, is I started to move. Uh, you know, when things aren't good inside, it manifested on the outside. I was overweight, not in good shape. Uh, you know, it's one of those things you look yourself in the mirror and you go, yeah, okay, um, time to change. Bought myself a treadmill, started running, and I started running. And literally, this whole thing about moving, if you physically can start moving, it begins to really connect with everything and you start moving in other ways. Because, you know, depression is in a, being in a state where you have nothing good to look forward to. Depression is anger turned inward, and that brings you to a place where you don't see there's anything good to look forward to. 
But if you start running, and if you start actually moving, that kind of breaks out of that. And so I started running. Started running 5Ks, started running, running, running. And I remember one time, I was, it was a struggle. I was so upset after an elders meeting, not blame anyone. It's probably my fault. You know, I was not in a good spot. But I went for a run. And I was so upset, I ran and I ran, and I came to the point where I looked down and looked at my watch. I had been running constantly for an hour and a half, and I didn't even realize it. I was just running that emotion out. And really, it's how God was working to release me out of the bitterness. Move. And when you move physically, that will start to help you move uh, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You begin to get a perspective of of faith and, and optimism that comes with that. Thirdly, community. You know, believe it or not, although ministers are in the relationship business, truth be told, is the reason why ministers get out of ministry is because they are isolated and alone. And it's not a sob story. It is what it is. And it's the fault of ministers themselves because a lot of times they're closed. They close themselves up. They minister to everybody but don't open themselves up to the connections that they need for their souls to be ministered to as well. Uh, Places where they can just be themselves and be real and they can be loved on for who they are, not what they provide. And so I was in that place. I was kind of, you know, doing my own thing. I had my family, but I needed more. So I opened myself up first of, to counseling. And when I decided to go and see a professional Christian counselor. And I went into the office and I said, okay, here's what's happening. And I need you to help me see what I don't see so that I can be the God, man that God has called me to be. First as a husband, then as a father, third as a minister. And it was a process. It was a great process. It was a hard process, but it was a process nonetheless. And you know why counseling works? It's not just the advice you get. Most importantly, it's the friendship you develop. See, counseling is community where you can just be you, right? And you can be accepted, warts and, and, and beauty marks and all. And if it's a good counselor, you know, they un, you unfold because you get listened to in a, in a powerful way, and God works through that community, but not only did I go to counseling, I decided it's time for me to ask for help. Instead of trying to do this on my own and figure it out on my own, I need help. And I need help from guys that know what I'm going through. So I opened myself up to a mentor group of other ministers, began to be part of it. In fact, I was praying for, for, for minister mentors, and I got a phone call from a guy from Cincinnati Christian saying, hey, we're starting this up. Would you be part of it? I said, absolutely. You're an answer to prayer and began to be part of that and began to share within that community, which led to a number of opportunities uh, to different groups in which I could just be Deedee Bacon, the dude, and be with these guys and be loved on it. But community. See, through the season of bitterness, God brought me out from from being empty because I went in full, came out empty, but he brought me back to a season of plenty to a season of blessing through the, the template that I see Naomi going through. Look up. Exercise whatever small faith you have, but don't let go of God. Move. It's a big one. Move. Move physically. Move forward. Even if it's just a little thing. Hey, I got up today and I made myself two eggs. <laughs> and I ate those. I know folks that are paralyzed on the couch because of depression, anxiety, whatever. Well, if you get up and move, go for a walk, step down to the end of your driveway, walk the dog back, whatever it takes, move. And third, 
open yourself up to community. There are people in your life who are like Ruth. I can guarantee it. Many times we're the ones pushing them away. We're like, Naomi, get away, get away. And I'm telling you, there are people in your life that God sends, if you're open to it, who are like Ruth, they will say, I will not leave you alone. They're not people that come up with platitudes and, and you need to do this and you should and you should and that. And you're like, don't shoot on me. No, it's, it's people who will say, I'll just be there and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to be with you, and I know you're going through difficult times, and I see the ugliness, but you know, I'm with you in this, and God is with you in this, because why? We serve a God who's with us in our bitter seasons. My hope is as we go through this story, this beautiful little story, what we do is we capture a glimpse in the kind of God we serve. We serve a God that's with us in our bitter season. You say, why do I go through a bitter season? That's a question I don't know. I don't know. Why am I going through this difficult time? Why am I going through this bitterness? I don't know. That's just the honest truth. I don't know. It could be a variety of reasons. It's what we see in Scripture. But regardless of the why, and really the answer to the why is irrelevant, when you're in the middle of it, what's most important is God is with me in my bitter seasons. God is with me in my bitter seasons. Look up, move, open yourself to the community he sends. Faith activates grace. Even if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, Jesus said, we serve a God who can do big things in the small. My hope is that you might learn to live with the God, the God of Naomi, God of Ruth, God of King David, the God of our Lord and Savior Jesus, whom we serve. And that this experience, this journey will just be the blessing and you'll be able to see, now I understand why God decided to put the story of Ruth right here so that we might know the God of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We might know the God of, of Joshua and Judges and all the Chronicles and all the Kings, but more importantly, we know that that same God is the God of Ruth, who's with me in my bitter seasons, even if I am a, feel like a foreigner, an outsider, alone and abandoned. We serve a God who's with us because of grace in our bitter seasons. We close our time together by providing an opportunity for you to pray with someone. Uh, we've got a couple of members of our prayer team will be up front. These guys are called to the ministry of prayer, and I, you can acknowledge that by going to them and sharing with them your heart if you want, community right here and now. If you want to make a decision to become a Jesus follower, to ex receive the gift undeserved, then uh, talk to them about that as well. But let's stand, and we'll close in prayer and be dismissed to go on our way. Thanks, Lord, for this lesson. I thank you for Ruth and the story that's there. Four little chapters amongst the big books of the Bible that talk about your grandeur and actions. And here we have this little book in which, you know, we don't really see you speak directly and we don't see you show up by an angel or by a prophet, but we know that you are there and the book tells us so much about who you are. A God of grace, a God who will never leave us nor forsake us, a God who will honor our faith even if our faith is the size of a mustard seed, weak and puny and bitter and empty. Help us, Lord, to trust in you, to look at the example of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and their courage in living by grace through faith, to look up, to move, 
to open ourselves up to community that will never leave us. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.